I rather enjoy coming in to this retreat as I've been doing every November for what seems like rather a, a long time. And just having the opportunity to transition out of the relatively full and sometimes busy life of engagement that is what I'm doing and to move into the and come into the space that's here to feel the the presence, the stillness, the quality of care and dedication that's palpable in this space, in this room at Gaia House and uh, so at one level it's, it's as I said uh, it's delightful to just come and join you and I kind of remember also from having participated in this retreat as a yogi it was probably 20 years ago the last time but I remember it still the sense of the sort of teachers turning up occasionally and oh, oh sort of some random character appears has something to say maybe talks to you maybe doesn't disappears and yet there's nonetheless something quite steady here. And as I was reflecting, it's, it's interesting, one of the other elements of coming in to speak is that actually I don't really know exactly what's going on for most of you. spoke to about a third of the group, I guess, uh, sometime in the last week for 15 minutes each. And uh, it's not that much of a clear picture. And so one of the other, in a way, interesting features of coming in here is uh, a sense of, oh, so what's perhaps universally relevant? It's the kind of question I ask myself. Or, or what might be relevant at this time? And as I was contemplating yesterday and uh, thinking what, what I might reflect on or share, I realised that I was giving a talk a couple of years ago here that I ran out of time and I only gave half of it. So I thought, I'll give the other half. And don't worry because it kind of it's one of those talks where it's really fine to start halfway. Um, and so what I'd like to speak about is uh, both the theme and then some of the particulars within that of what we speak of in the tradition as parami. Parami is a word that can be translated and has been translated in various ways, but it refers to the possibility of developing something to its fullness. Sometimes translated as perfection. The parami are qualities of the human heart and mind which can be developed to a degree of completion, wholeness and fulfilment in which one could say they're perfected. Although there's a little danger with the language of perfection for many of us and so I'm cautious in the use of that. I think if we understand it as a sense of potential, in fact it has no final end point where we're kind of finished. But nonetheless we can recognise ways in which the fullness of potential in some realms in our life maybe has room for further development and others it feels quite replete, quite full in that sense. And so... Parami and the, the teachings and the perspectives with regard to this 
as I sometimes said, the perfections. It's it's really about the cultivation of what I would call in essential terms goodness. That which is fundamentally wholesome. That which is our potential as human beings that is beautiful, that is lovely, that is uplifted and that is contributive to well-being, to happiness, to fulfillment. And to understand goodness in this way rather than as something opposed to or in contradiction to to badness or, you know, we talk about good, bad or good, evil. It's not that kind of framework. Goodness is it's perhaps more wholesomeness, that which is of wholeness and which, of course, quite naturally opens the possibility of holiness, which is, it is with which it is very much connected. <coughs> Excuse me. So in the story of the Buddha that we're told, that we hear him, him relate in one passage or passages in the, in the recorded teachings from his life, he talks about a, a circumstance which might, for some of us, sound a little, you know, questionable, but others might find it quite um, sort of obvious, in that he's talking about a previous life of his that took place... Um, thousands upon thousands of years before the life in which we know him as Siddhartha Gautama, who awakened and became the Buddha. And he says that in that life, he recalled, that he he was practicing, as you and I perhaps practice here in these days, and there was a very powerful ripening and deepening taking place. And in that time, he had the opportunity and fortunate, he, he met the Buddha of that age. This is what he spoke about, how he describes it. He met the Buddha of that age and he realized that the, this being he'd encountered had remarkably full development, or we could say perfection of development, of certain human qualities that were touching, that were powerful. And that allowed that te- that Buddha, it was Dipankara Buddha in the story, allowed that person to be the perfect teacher. Which means he was able to teach each individual person as they needed to be taught. I'll say a little more about that in a moment. But this was so inspiring to the Buddha that he he was moved in himself to not just seek his own awakening... And in fact, the story describes that if he recognized that, well, he could actually have, if he'd continued to practice in a certain way, fulfilled that process of awakening in and for himself. But what he recognized was there was a greater potential than just awakening in terms of liberating one's own particular constructs of dukkha and suffering, but that one could actually awaken for the welfare and for the benefit of all beings. And by having fully explored human life and through that deeply and profoundly cultivated and developed human potential in all the realms, not just the trajectory which we could call the depth dimension of awakening, of the understanding, the realisation of our our fundamentally awakened nature. It's one way we could speak about it. That there was also this possibility of developing the human capacity in a very rounded way that by having explored the totality of human experience and existence, one was able to meet anybody 
wherever they were and teach them as they needed to be taught. And so this is a, it's a very interesting thing. The sense is it's a great sacrifice. He gave up the chance to just get, you know, everyday common or garden enlightenment for the possibility of full, complete and perfect awakening. Not because it was necessarily going to be more fun for him, but because he saw the possibility of what it could offer to the world. And so there's two things I want to draw from that. The first is this potential, and this was also in the Buddha's own awakening, what he was recognized and known as the perfect teacher. Which doesn't mean he was somehow perfect as a human being. I think that's probably a little fantastical. I don't think that's actually the case. But what he had refined and developed to a remarkable degree was the ability to discern what an individual needed, what would serve them to deepen in their practice and to awaken in their journey. And it's striking to me the number of different ways the Buddha responded to different people in different situations, or the same person in different situations, or different people who were in similar situations. The responses were often very particular. And what this says to me is that it's really helpful to understand for ourselves that we have to find our own path here. Unless we're fortunate to have encountered a Buddha who has this capacity, because one could be talking in a certain archetypical way, representing the potential of the awakened wisdom of the heart and mind rather than the literal individual human being Buddha, Dipankara Buddha or Siddhartha Gautama. Shakyamuni Buddha of our own age that there's this um, way in which if we don't have someone else who can see us and know us intimately in such a way they can directly tell us what we need to do to practice we have to explore and do that for ourselves we have to find out for ourselves and what that for me does is it really supports and validates the process of exploration in which as individuals we find our own rhythm within a practice situation like this we find the particular tools that serve us the particular techniques that support the process and we perhaps free ourselves from the attractive and sometimes pernicious idea that there is a right way, possibly even just one right way, and possibly it's either the way I'm doing it, which is the only right way, or it's obviously some other way, and the way I'm doing it is not the right way. Of course, exploring and seeing what's useful, what serves, what works, we need to do this. But opening or stepping back from the idea there is just one way, one path, one, or one framework of practice. In a sense, the path is broad enough to contain many. And as far as I'm concerned, any teacher or tradition that says that we have the only way or the best way is probably a little insecure to need to say that. Because all one needs to know is that this way is good and it works. It doesn't really matter. We don't have to put it in relationship to another way that's better or worse or only or whatever. So if we know that the way we are engaging in is useful, wholesome, beneficial, transformative, then it really doesn't matter what some other person somewhere else is doing. So, so in speaking about this 
encounter of the Buddha and this this shift in his practice and his journey, which then the stories of um, that are recounted of many many experiences and lives that the Buddha had, which he sometimes messed up quite a bit, but he learned a remarkable amount over time about what it means to be awake. So that in his own awakening, it was also that fullness that allowed him to guide beings as they needed to be guided, to teach beings as they needed to be taught. And so what is it for us to have a vision of practice, of awakening for the benefit of all beings? A sense of being willing to go through the learning processes, perhaps sometimes the mistakes, to not have to so quickly find the only, the right, the quickest, the fastest, the best way. Because all of the kind of tightness that goes with that kind of view in the end doesn't serve us and it doesn't serve the world. There's enough comparative, competitive rigidity without it in, this, um, in our culture, in our world, without it becoming part of our spiritual framework. So that's in a way uh, just an introduction to the territory of why this is important. And the Buddha spoke of, and the tradition speaks of, ten qualities, which I'm just going to speak about the last four, because as I said a couple of years ago, I did the other six, and so that's just how it is. The tape will be on there, or the recording will be somewhere if you want to listen to it. But um, I name them all nonetheless. The first quality is dana, generosity, capacity for sharing. Second is sila, morality, sometimes translated, but I think ethicality is a more useful word, and the sense of restraining one's potential for harmful action, caring about the impact of our actions, non-harming. Nikamma is uh, renunciation, letting go, the ability to release the tendency to take hold of and equally to release the tendency to resist experience, to let go, to let be. Renunciation is nikamma. Virya is uh, energy and skillful effort, such a central part of the path, learning how to find balance between pushing too hard and not really engaging wholeheartedly. Kanti is patience, it's the fifth paramis. Kanti is the ability to just stay with the process, to know that it has its own time, its own frame. It's not according to our preference. To not be waiting for something else and yet to be open for what's here. The quality of wholesome patience, Kanti. The sixth is Sakya, truthfulness. Being really committed to the truth of our experience. This is fundamental. It's said that although the Buddha messed up in all sorts of ways through the thousands of lifetimes that he had, he was always truthful, including about the ways he messed up. He was always honest. If we're not honest with ourselves about our experience, about what's going on, it's hard to really deepen. It's kind of embarrassing if we're honest with ourselves, but that's the nature of the beast, it seems, to actually allow ourselves to be seen at least by ourselves and maybe also by those we work and share our practice with, teachers or sangha friends, the, uh, the truth of our messy humanness, which is not something we need to be at all ashamed for or about. 
but which we might nonetheless need to, in a kindly way, be humbled by. And therefore truthfulness in that way, very important. So I'd like to speak further about the, um, the, fir- the next four, and I'll just name them again and then pick them up individually. Upeka, equanimity. Quality of balance and steadiness in the face of turbulence. Aditana, a sense of resolve, of commitment, of a, a willingness to stay steady with one's wholesome intentionality. Come on, mate. Panya, wisdom, the faculty of discernment, understanding and comprehension that is fundamentally what liberates. And metta, the quality of kindness, of friendliness, of warmth and care, the natural expression of the awakened heart. And so... At one level, we might hear the list, and it's oh, that, that's you know, that's quite a tall order. I mean, there's only you know, really just a couple more weeks here, and uh, maybe three or four, you know, um, for some, maybe just a week for others. I'm not quite sure I'm going to get through all of them. Um, but notice if there's something that responds in you through the sense of that possibility, because what the Buddha, in a way, is standing for, is speaking to, is not necessarily that one needs to spend the next 10,000 lifetimes cultivating these qualities. I mean, who knows? Maybe you've already spent the last 10,000 lifetimes cultivating these qualities, and that's why you're here. And this might be the one in which that all comes together. So don't discount that possibility. I'm not guaranteeing it's the case, but you can't write it off either. And so, equanimity. I can see why I didn't get a finish last time. I'm halfway through the time and I haven't actually even started the content of the, the parami. But, but I think the context of it is, uh, is as significant and relevant, really. Equanimity, upeka. It's interesting how strongly this word appears within our practice culture. It's used a lot. It's one of the Brahma Viharas. It's, um, it's one of the seven factors of awakening. It's one of the parami. And it kind of looks spiritual. Like spiritual people shouldn't be too bothered by things, should they? That's equanimity, we think, often, easily. And uh, the interesting thing is that's not what it means. It doesn't mean we aren't bothered by things. Peacefulness, which I spoke, or, or sorry, um, calm is a different quality. And it's one of the factors of awakening. It's another list. Won't do that today. Unless there's time, but that's unlikely. Um, equanimity is best perhaps described as balance, as rootedness, and an openness to all experience. As one, one Tibetan teacher observed, equanimity is to be equally near to all things. That means to be equally near to the difficult things as to the easeful or uplifting aspects of our experience. It doesn't mean that suddenly it's all calm and clear. That's tranquility. That's a whole different thing. Calm. In terms of samatha, tranquility, pasiddhi, these are very delightful states and conditions, but equanimity is not a particular condition. It's a capacity 
Of course, everything becomes a condition, but it's a capacity to handle conditions. That's what equanimity is. It's not about being distant from or removed from our life and its fullness, its challenges, its beauty and its tragedy. But being able to be impacted, to be touched by all of that. It's not that the ocean has gone calm, but to be touched by the waves and yet anchored. It's not the, the tree on a calm day, it's the tree in the storm, but rooted deep in the earth. This is what equanimity points to, speaks to. And it's not an easy thing for us, as I'm sure you will appreciate. There's a, a poem that I first heard when I was teaching with a, uh, a friend from Switzerland, Fred von Elman, in um, America many years ago. And I think it's become rather popular in sort of pop spiritual world since then. But I'd never heard it when I first heard him um, share it. And I just kind of wanted to mention his name. He used to teach here at Guy House. Um, he used to teach in many places. He's now, uh, I think he must be in his early 80s. And uh, he's a very, uh, for me, important uh, teacher and friend in the Dharma for many years. So it's nice for me to share this uh, little poem that I first heard from him and just remember him also. Something important for us, just as we might remember the Buddha, the Buddhas, also remembering people who have touched us. And and Fred was someone who actually embodied a a very steady, mountain-like quality very kind, very soft, but very mountain-like. He comes from Switzerland. He lives on a mountain. It's not entirely surprising. Um, but uh, I guess it's not always like that. Anyway, the poem is loosely based or obviously derived from the poem If by Rudyard Kipling, which I don't know if you you know that poem. It's a classic sort of English, I guess, Victorian poem in which Kipling extols the sort of the classic sort of gentleman virtues of, uh, of what it is to become a, a man. Anyway, this is a different poem. But if you know that poem, it's interesting to bear it in mind when you hear this one. It goes like this. If you can sit quietly after difficult news, if in financial downturns you remain perfectly calm, if you can see your neighbours travel to fantastic places without a twinge of jealousy, if you can happily eat whatever is put on your plate and always fall asleep after a day of running around, without a drink or a pill, if you can always find contentment just where you are. You are probably a dog. (laughs) I think it's good to not set up ourselves for the fall of, I should be able to always be equanimous. It's really not easy for us. One of the great arts of practice is to find equanimity with our sometimes absolute absence of equanimity. It's interesting. We can always take a step back. Wow, I'm completely frustrated, upset, confused, reactive to what's going on. Oh, can I actually find my ground with that too? That's what equanimity invites us. As I said, it's different to tranquility, to calm, which is also important. And it requires us also to be quite honest with ourselves, to not pretend there is no reactivity. Don't try and kid ourselves. 
because we think that's what we're supposed to be doing. Being equanimous means having no reactivity. Suppressing reaction to look equanimous. It goes on a lot in Buddhist circles. And it really doesn't serve anybody. You know, there's a, there's a kind of like a pretty much universal but unwritten rule that in Thailand that the monks are not supposed to show their teeth when they smile. You know, you know, it's all right if the sides of your mouth go up a little bit, but don't show your teeth. That's way too much sort of merriment, enjoyment, humor, or whatever. And it's like, clearly, that isn't the Dharma. But it's some idea that a monk is supposed to be not enjoying sufficient, not enjoying merriment because they're being equanimous. Holy. As if somehow holiness or spirituality meant that one was untouched by life. It's a very different thing to be touched but not moved. That sense of stability in a storm. Or the image that I really like is a boat on the ocean. Because I think for most of us, practice isn't. There's ways in which it's useful to have that image of a tree rooted deeply in the earth, but sometimes a boat on the ocean is a more useful metaphor. And there's the wind, and there's the waves, and there's the currents. And there's all these different ways that the boat could actually get tipped over. But the boat has a keel, that part of the boat that is thrust deep into the water. And that by the depth of the keel... In the depth of the water, there is a stabilizing that allows the boat to not be knocked over, to not be capsized, and actually allows it to steer. Without a keel, you can't really steer a boat because it'll just keep getting blown away wherever the wind is going. With a keel, you can actually give it direction. And so what this means for us in terms of practice at two levels, one is the intentionality that we have of rooting into what is our deepest aspiration, our deepest intention for our practice here. This is something that actually gives us a deeper ground than the day-to-day, well, I think I'll do some meditation, hopefully it'll get a little calmer, or maybe there'll be an insight, possibly some sort of warm, fuzzy meta-feelings might arise. Those are all fine intentions too, but there needs to be something deeper, because some days none of that's going to happen for you. Sorry um, if I'm dispelling any sort of hopeful sort of plans for the day. But there are some days when it just doesn't happen like that. But having a deeper intention that can hold all of what goes on here. That's what actually keeps us rooted, so we're not blown off our cushion, so to speak, and we're likewise, we can maintain our trajectory, our directionality. There's another way in which we can actually very consciously feel into, if we bring the attention into the body and feel down through the central channel or the sort of vertical axis of the body that runs very close to the the neck's spine and through the back of the pelvis, down into the earth. And we can actually feel the connection with the earth. We can actually sense energetically that we are related to and that we can actually take the awareness, the sensitivity, into the field that extends beyond the physical structure, which is just one aspect of what we call body, the physical expression, the structure, the mechanical bits. Energetically, we can actually sense and open and develop and strengthen a connection with the earth. 
It's not just a good idea to spend a few moments feeling your bottom when you land on your cushion or chair, but to actually consciously be establishing a relationship in which you are rooted, not just on the earth, but in the earth. And anything that's sticking out from the earth came from the earth. This body, trees, whatever, came out of the earth. Something in it knows that's where it came from. And finds that and finding that connection has something greater to rest on than just the the relative fragility and temporariness of body in the ordinary human body sense. So to be earthed is to have a a ground from which one can engage. Equanimity, Upeka. Next parami is resolve, determination. Aditana is the word. Tana in Aditana is the, um, the same word as in Sati, Patana. So um, Tana is, it's like a foundation, it's like a place to make your stand. It's like, it's related to what I was speaking about before. It's a different aspect of that element of what gives equanimity, is that rootedness, is that groundedness. Aditana is actually the quality that can make that groundedness and rootedness very solid and clear. And it comes to from a place of clarity and commitment. We could say a wholesome expression of willpower also. We could understand it as such. That sense of when we say, I will do this. I will not engage in that. And that's it. We're not debating it. It's not saying we're going to do it perfectly, but so far as I possibly can, this is my commitment. And so maybe we come to a sitting and it's not easy because the body or the mind is in distress or chaos or something else is going on. And part of us would like to say, I'm just out of here. This is too difficult. But something else in us says, no. Actually, even if my mind doesn't stay in the room for more than a second, I'm just going to keep my body here. Even if I can't keep my body sitting cross-legged, I'm going to stand up or I'm going to unfold my legs, but I'm just going to stay here. There might be moments where it's appropriate for someone to say, actually, I do need to go. Sometimes I even give someone an instruction who says, I can't leave the hall, it's just not permissible during the sitting. It's such a bad breach of the normal rules. It is not allowed to happen. I will make myself stay here. And I actually say, oh, make a commitment to leave during the middle of a sitting once and just see what happens. See if everyone else gets up and points a finger at you. and goes, shame. See if a few people maybe just go, phew, it's allowed. Nobody died when someone left halfway through the sitting. So when I say that kind of commitment... The commitment is often to not be carried away by our reactivity. And sometimes my reactivity says, stay here. Sometimes my reactivity says, get out of here. But sometimes, and this isn't talked about so frequently, my reactivity says, I cannot move. And if that's reactivity rather than commitment, then actually freedom is expressed. And saying, oh, you know, I can and I will. And let's see if the world falls down. So it's useful not to associate 
resolve an aditana with any outer expression. We can't tell what it looks like from the outside. We can only know it from the inside. For one person, just choosing to stay might be one of the most courageous, noble and beautiful things they've ever done. And for another person, choosing to leave might be equally noble, courageous and important. Depending on what's actually going on. But, of course, we talk about staying in the sitting or completing the walking or just staying at the retreat. You know, it's a great story, a student of uh, Catherine's, who many of you know, my wife, who taught this retreat many times. Um, She said, you know, she heard from a student who came on her retreat um, several weeks later that they were in Plymouth before they realised they'd left the retreat. Like, they just had be completely unconscious in the process of getting their things, getting in their vehicle, driving away. So, oh my God, I left the retreat. It happens sometimes. So in that sense, seeing what it is to say, I'm here. I'm here for this. I'm up for this. Whatever it might be, however it might look. And sometimes just small resolves, small resolutions, we could say, are are actually something that brings a lot of... um, we say crispness and, and a kind of, they have a cutting power to just make a resolution to say, okay, it's not something that's going to be harmful to your body, your heart, or your mind, or anybody else. Not like, I'm, you know, I'm going to do something sort of foolhardy. But actually, oh, you know, I really like that, whatever it is that I have after lunch every day a nap, a cup of tea with two spoonfuls of sugar, a hot chocolate a period of permissible mindlessness where I really don't give a damn for about an hour. Or whatever it is you have after lunch, if you're anything like me anyway. And just say, oh, you know, I want to see what it's like if I don't do that. Someone was telling me about the remarkable impact. Um, This was in summer. I was teaching at Insight Meditation Society. She said she, every Retreat for years and years and years. At lunchtime, after lunch, she went out and walked around the loop that goes through some lanes and around and past the lovely pond. She'd done it every time, every retreat. And she just decided, I won't do that this time. She realized she was really anxious and scared about what might happen because who knows? And so she went for a walk in the woods instead. And she said, it was the most amazing, delicious, lovely experience of just discovering the woods. But... I think, yes, the woods were lovely, but actually what happens when we make a change to our habitual comfort-seeking, security, familiarity-reinforcing patterns, particularly our retreat habits, it's really useful to do that sometimes. And sometimes it takes a certain resolve. Like I sometimes think, okay, so I won't have two spoonfuls of sugar in that cup of tea. And then you're there, or I'm there, and it's like the cup of tea looks fine, it tastes okay, but boy, it would be a lot better with some sugar in it. And it's like, ah, oh, wow, I've just got to breathe for a couple of moments and just say, no, I'm not going to do it this time. And then it drops away, and then maybe one gets down to having to just battle with one spoonful of sugar. Just, you know, one could say, no, oh, so it's a development. It's not quite yet a fully, fully completed sort of parami of resolve, but it's on the way. The Buddha himself, in the night of his awakening, as he took his seat under the Bodhi tree, he said, and it touches me deeply just to recall his words. He said, 
I will not move from this place until I have understood what can be understood by human endeavor. I will not move from this place. Though my blood runs dry, though my bones turn to dust, I will not move from this place until I have understood and realized what can be understood and realized by human endeavor. And it's something, I find it remarkable. I fi- it's like the power of that commitment and that it feel, I feel like it comes down through the generations and the millennia when I hear it spoken. Even that I've heard it spoken by others and by myself plenty of times is the sense of, I feel that. It doesn't mean you're not allowed to move from your cushion until you get fully enlightened. That would be a, a misunderstanding of what I mean. But it's like, just be that full and clear and see what's possible. To see what we can discover here, what we can realize by our human endeavor. That's Aditana. In fact, it's nice to pronounce it properly. It's tana. It's like there's some sort of boom. Adi tana. The H means aspirate the consonant in the way it's transliterated. It's not thana, adi thana. It's adi tana. And again, even just the sound of the word, there's a quality energetically of what it's about. It's like boom. This morning when I was out for a run, and I start to flag a little bit on some of the uphill bits, living on Dartmoor as I do. It's quite hard work. And there's sometimes I actually have to make a noise, something like that, just to keep myself going up the hill. And it's very interesting just to connect with the energetic quality of something that goes... Tuh! And hope the uh, various neighbours won't be too worried by the sound of some strange human being going past. So, I'm not going to get through even these four, am I? <laughs> well... We'll see. Wisdom. Panya. The capacity, the faculty for understanding and discernment. We speak a lot about it in this tradition and these practices that we're engaged in. And uh, of course, it's central. We talk about this as a wisdom practice, oriented towards the process of discovering, of seeing the truth of things. Seeing things as they are, we could say, though that's not to imply that there's a fixed or a finite or a singular way that they are, but as they are in this moment, as they present, and what is true about them, to see that. And this is what arises out of our cultivation, development of practice, of presence, of being awake and conscious and in touch with what's happening right here. To be open to and interested in What is now? This is the ground in which wisdom arises. This is why we give it so much care, so much support, so much encouragement, this practice of just being awake, mindful, conscious, present, aware. All these words we use, mindful. All these words we use, they're in the service of this, the discovery, the development the fruition of panya, of wisdom. The characteristic of wisdom itself, its, it's very nature, when we might ask, well, exactly what is it? 
I find um, sort of like definitions are most helpful if they're functional, which is in they, re- they describe how something functions rather than what it is, because what is it? It's kind of mysterious, basically. Sometimes it turns up and sometimes it doesn't. But what is it? What it does, however, is very clear. When we see and act on wisdom, it liberates. That's its character, its nature, its function. It's that. What we notice, we see, is a reduction and a healing of suffering when we act in alignment in accord with what is true. And that is what wisdom is, the seeing of what is true that allows us to act in accord with what is true. And wisdom is both that seeing and that basis for action that leads to a reduction initially and ultimately the ending of, the transformation of suffering. This is the character of wisdom. And equally, suffering, again, is the wrong word here, dukkha, the transformation, the end, the the, the the coming to its cessation of dukkha. And dukkha is not just suffering. That refers to the, the painful, the difficult elements of experience. Dukkha is also the unsatisfactoriness or the unfulfillment when we have not yet fully understood, realized, actualized, and lived what is possible for us as human beings. Because even if things are pretty comfortable, nice, and there's no obvious suffering, we might easily notice a sense of possibility of further, greater, or more possibility. The sense of our human heart that calls to be all of what it can be, that isn't actually happy to just have a a comfortable, small life. So wisdom is also that which leads us into the development, the growth, the maturation, the maturation, and ultimately the fruition of human potential, of our possibility. So all of what I've been speaking about, in one sense, falls within wisdom. In fact, all that we probably ever speak about here, hopefully, is in the service of the reduction and the ending of dukkha. And therefore, we would call it that. And hence, we call it a wisdom tradition. And so there's many different elements of where we can notice suffering or limitation, which is perhaps another way to talk about that lack of full development of our potentiality, what limits and binds that. At a personal level, the the wisdom of just getting to know our patterns, our habits, our stuff, the way in which our history conditions us in very particular ways the ways in which it shapes our view of who we are and it coerces our responses to experience has a coercive force if we're not aware of it. These self-images and these historical patternings. So there's a whole level of wisdom concerned with this. And then there's the more universal realms of wisdom. With that first, it's, it's kind of for each of us, it's our own version of it. No two human beings have the same story, the same experience have exactly the same journey to make. The landscape of your journey will be particular to your life, to your history, to your ancestry as well. So, of course, we share things with our shared human ancestry. But there's also that which is not shared in a sense that for someone it may be just this, different than for anyone else. But there's also that which is more universal, which is shared. And again, these are 
topics frequently engaged with. And I'm just kind of wanting to name them here within the context of what I'm speaking about rather than have a full analysis of the realm of wisdom, which, of course, would take a little longer than I have left. But the seeing of experience of life and seeing it through the lens of contemplation. The Buddha said, Sabay Sankara Anicca. Sabay, all. Sankara, conditioned things, formed things, created things. Anicca, are not permanent. Do not exist ongoingly. Sabay Sankara Anicca. Sabay Sankara Dukkha. Again, all conditioned, created, formed things are in themselves unable to give us lasting fulfillment and satisfaction. That's what that means. It doesn't mean they're just horrible, miserable, nasty, yucky things. That's a tragic, tragically incomplete understanding and misleading understanding. It means that in and of themselves they cannot give us lasting satisfaction because they're changing, because they're not permanent and lasting. They don't have it in themselves to give us something permanent and lasting. And this is the way the Buddha unpacks this teaching. Sabe Sankara Dukkha. The interesting thing that isn't always maybe highlighted as fully as it could be, because experience that is formed is in a process of change and dissolution. It also, as well as not being able to give us lasting satisfaction, it also cannot in itself create to us an ultimate obstacle for our happiness, for our freedom. These two elements go together, and again, that's in this. Oh, there is no basis for a phenomenon to be taken hold of as a solution. It doesn't work. But there is also no way we, when seen correctly, we need to imagine any particular construct, formation, condition, or experience is ultimately a problem either. Phenomena, constructed, formed, shaped experience doesn't do that, can't do that. So, Sabe Sankara Dukkha. And then Sabe Dharma Anatta. Famous words, often quoted, reflected on of the Buddha. Sabe Dharma or Dharmas Anatta. All dharmas are without separate, inherent, independent existence. Anatta. Without some kernel of separate otherness that makes it completely apart from things around it. Doesn't mean nothing exists. It means that nothing exists except in relationship to, formed by, conditioned by, shaped by, and related to everything else. And Sabe Dharma, not just formed things, but even that which is unformed. There's a significant difference of phrase. Sabe Sankara, Anicca and Dukkha. Sabe Dharma, Anatta. All dharmas, all truths, all, in fact, we could say. is anatta, is not separate. So it's not just that, um, oh, you or I, we're not a a separate self somehow removed um, and disconnected from others and what is around us. That's part of what we contemplate from this teaching, absolutely. 
but it's also to understand that what could be understood as the and articulated as the unformed, the unconditioned, however we might understand this, this too is not separate from the formed, is not separate from the total manifestation of experience. The awakened nature of life is not separate from the manifestation of life, is another way we could put that. And so much pain, so much suffering comes from the tragic separation that is deeply rooted in the psyche of our culture and our world, of the, in a way we could say, simply the separation of spirit and matter. And the uh, rapid and enthusiastic uh, modern movement towards the assumption that there is only the latter, i.e. matter. As if matter and spirit were somehow separable. The Buddha doesn't speak of it exactly in those terms. But then of course he didn't have to deal with the uh, implications of the European Enlightenment, or I suspect he might have done. But to see that all that is formed is formed out of conditions, dissolves into conditions. To see it is empty of inherent existence. Not empty of existence. It's not to say it's not there, but it's not there in some way that makes it separate from whatever else is there. Shunyata, to not be to be empty of inherent existence. And it's interesting when we shorten those phrases down to just talk about emptiness, how we might imagine that means an absence, and it's not about an absence. It's about the character of what's being encountered, being unable to exist apart from, or to manifest apart from the conditions around it in terms of, um, in terms of conditioned phenomena. Equally, that which is conditioned being unable to exist without the unconditioned. But likewise, the unconditioned, while not dependent upon the conditioned, not being in any way separable from it, or apart from that which is conditioned. That's not easy for our cognitive processes to make sense of. So if you're getting a little bit hot between the ears, it's starting to smoke, you're going, uh, fine. Just see if you can relax. Or maybe it makes sense, sounds good, or disagree, that's fine. But just notice that the teaching can't necessarily unpack the totality because words can't do that. Whichever version of them we prefer, let that be a sense of a pointer for you, whether the frames I might be articulating or others you might resonate with, fine. But don't make them end points. Part of wisdom is to understand that the conceptual can be used to skillfully and remarkably point towards, but it does not go all the way. And yet we can know that to which the pointing is referring. So as we see, anicca, anatta, dukkha, 
his characteristics. Shunyata, emptiness. What we see is the tendency to put onto phenomenal experience, onto conditions, either this is the solution to my existence or the problem in my existence. If we don't give it that kind of weight, there's a kind of a settling back, a relinquishing the authority we've given to those forms, the power we've given them over us. There's a letting go that might sometimes feel a little bit like groundlessness, but the kind of groundlessness that, as uh, Joseph Goldstein once observed, he's one of the senior teachers in our community, uh, he says, you know, it's a bit like jumping out of a plane, going for a parachute jump, and jumping out of a plane, and then realizing, you haven't brought your parachute, and then realizing that there's no ground. And there's a sense of when we're not looking for our fulfillment, our satisfaction, or the problem in the world of phenomena. There's a sense in which we're ungrounded, but not falling. When I, when I, I worked at IMS for a couple of years as the resident teacher in the, in the mid-90s. And um, when I left, they gave me a card. It was very lovely. It said... Could you tell the difference between flying and falling if there was no ground? Of course one couldn't. That sense of what happens as we learn to let go. And this is really what wisdom calls on us to do, to let go. Letting go is the fundamental mechanism for liberating our hearts. We find that there is... a certain buoyancy to life. It doesn't mean it isn't at times excruciatingly difficult or confusing or just hard work. But there's something that actually has buoyancy in the very nature of what's happening. Ryokan, the Zen monk, poet and hermit who lived in Japan in the 17th, 18th century. One of my favourite sort of uh, characters from the, the Buddhist world. He, he observed in one of his poems, he said once, we asked really, he said, Do you want to know what's been in my heart since before the beginning of time? Just this. Just this. Wisdom, Panya, and it's 10.30, so 
Metta, part three. Maybe later this month, maybe another November. We'll see. Thank you for your presence and your practice. Please continue. And may our practice be for the the welfare and the liberation of ourselves, of all beings, of all of life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.